Hi, my name is Isabel and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast, brought to you by ESG Book. In this episode, I'm speaking with Navin Ranier. Nav is a partner at the Tata Group, where he leads the business and technology delivery for Tata's clients, including Tata companies, such as financials and corporates within the Tata Group. His international experience assists in building these diverse global delivery teams that work on sustainability at large. Hi, Nav. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Isabel. Lovely to see you again. So when we talk about corporate sustainability, let's jump right in. You're with the Tata Group, which is an interesting case study. And as a conglomerate, they have many companies. But interestingly, on the top level, they're owned by a group of philanthropies. Could you explain to us how that works, how the philanthropic layer of the Tata Trusts are collaborating with the Tata companies? And why is this something that is quite unique in the world? Sure, definitely, Isabel. So firstly, thank you for having me uh, on this podcast as well. And uh, I think when we look at the the, the Tata group, it's a, a, a behemoth of a group, may I say. And uh, it's very got, it's got very historical roots as well. You know, my role in the uh, in the organization is working in our technology house known as TCS, which basically assists clients, as you basically mentioned, including our Tata Group uh, uh, companies, including uh, companies in the UK, such as Jaguar Land Rover. We also have Tata Steel uh, in the UK, and we also have Tata Steel International. We also own airlines. So our airline portfolio includes Vistara, uh, Air India uh, as well. We own hotels, uh, including the, the Taj Group. As, as well. In India itself, we have a partnership with uh, Starbucks as well. You know, we own Tata Tea, Tata Tea consumer products such as British Salt uh, as well under our Tata Chemicals brand as well. So when you think about just only some of the companies that I've basically talked about, and as I said, I'm working in our sister company called TCS, the route to sustainability is very much embedded in our culture and why is that embedded in our culture uh, as well when we look at the way philanthropy basically works at the top level it's been important because we've always thought about doing good for social society we've always thought about how do we basically bring uh our employees and how do we bring our companies up into the new era. We also need to think about social and governance issues as well. And these social and governance issues have been historically rooted in countries like, say, India, which are developing them. And India is developing at such a fast pace as well. And there is a huge goal to go. Now, there is a difference why we have emerging markets versus uh, developed economies, right? There is a huge paratus as well. So when we look at the way the Tata Trusts are basically set up, the philanthropy that is done by our our current CEO uh, as well, who owns all of the uh, Tata companies under, under, under his brand, it's very important to think about the S and the G, to think about others in society, to think about communities as well. So they are not left behind, especially in the era 
of growth in countries in emerging market economies such as India, which are growing so fast. Very interesting. And also thinking about this in relationship to the US debate around ESG and the role of companies in society, could you maybe give the American audience a quick take on sort of the, the different mindset that perhaps also the, like the Indian society has around companies beyond the Tata group, but generally the, the role of a company in, in society? Of course. So when we look back in history, you know, developing countries have been prospering for a very, very long time. And we know that there is this tussle between uh, in history with developing countries, which used to basically be part of emerging market countries uh, as well. And I don't need to go there to explain that. Now, obviously, developed economies have got the edge over and consumer lifestyles are far, far more advanced. Now, consumer lifestyles have been built on when sustainability was not around. When we assume that the abundance of materials was infinite. One of the issues that we basically see, and when we think about, let's take a topic such as climate change, right, is when we know that climate change is going to affect our day-to-day -day lives, not immediately, but when we look at probability of that happening over 30, 50, 100 years, What do we have to give up now to prosper in the future? And when we think about measuring that, how do we look at that from a consumer perspective? And I'm going to bring in a bit of technicals here. It's very important when we do climate risk stress testing and we look at climate risk scenarios, especially via the TCFD, what do we focus on? Shared socioeconomic pathways, SSPs. And I always encourage everyone who's listening to this right now to go and Google that. It's a very, very fundamental path that talks about a sovereign nation and its sovereign policies and the behavior of its consumers and how they're going to adapt in this sustainability transition. Now, because of history and the way uh, developing markets and developed economies uh, are moving at different rates of GDP, you know, Will the consumer be willing to give up and have a, say, less comfortable life? Or would they be psychologically be prone to, to change? And again, a lot of this is about mindset and what we observe when we look at emerging market economies. Emerging market economies, there is a quicker mindset, which is more acceptable to change as well, because they know that at the end of the day, they see the first hand effects of, let's say, climate change. Emerging market economies see the first hand effects of poor social and governance practices as well, because there is obviously still a gap to, to go to bring that up in line with uh, developed economies. I hope that makes sense, Isabel. No, that is very interesting. Um, also thinking about the visibility, right, of effects that really hints at something you've been closely involved with it's the data the information like what can we actually measure and what can we know what can we see basically of the impact that society can have on a corporate's balance sheet but also the other way around in which corporates have an impact on society at large 
um, you said environmental impacts, but obviously also the governance and the social impacts. Could you speak more about um, the data? So as you are within a company, could you speak more about the data that you guys are collecting internally and how you see that larger within the market evolving? Of course. So let, let's look at an example of the uh, entity that I, I, I sit in, which is known as TCS. You know, so we use our uh, GRI framework to report our our numbers uh, as well and our metrics. But we also use at the top level in, in Tata and the group itself, we subscribe to the UN SDGs as well. So collecting the data for, let's say, an organization like TCS, which has over 700,000 people who are looking at te- technology uh, most of the time, is uh, incredibly challenging. It's also incredibly challenging if you are looking at UN SDGs at the Tata group level and you are mapping that to different sectors that we are in, such as metals metals and minings, technology. Uh, we're in financials as well. Autos such as Jaguar Land Rover and Tata Motors, you know, retail, infrastructure, telecom, aerospace and defense, tourism, travel, they all have a different ESG profile as well. Now, that is a challenge for not just us, but for that's a challenge for the general industry as well. The general uh, industry, let's say uh, another conglomerate, are going to face the same set of challenges. It, and when we think about it from a financial markets perspective, think let's think about a bank. A bank will be invested in numerous different sectors, right? So you can see the commonality of the issue. And the question goes down to, okay, what ESG framework makes sense, right? What ESG disclosures should I be basically be doing? So should I be creating my own internal ESG framework that covers everything sector by sector or cross sector? Do I have a generic ESG framework? How will my TCFD and TNFD as well, let's not forget nature as well, how will my TCFD and TNFD metrics look by the investments I made in this company? Or if I'm a conglomerate as well, how would that look on the top level as well? Other things that you know need to be thought about by industries as well as metrics and how you look at metrics. So when we think about carbon emissions, Well, there are 20 different ways of calculating carbon emissions. Are you going to use carbon intensity? Is it a weighted average carbon intensity as well? What is the unit of measurement, right? And with this focus on carbon, what about the other uh, greenhouse gases? Don't forget the GHG protocol. So we think about methane, SO2, NO2. Uh, Look, I'm not a scientist, you know, but uh, uh, I think you get the picture there as well. So reporting, calculating, aggregating of the data in different industries with different metrics and different numbers and different calculations is a challenge for any company as well. And I think this is where technology comes in to solve the problem. You raise a lot of questions around standardization, picking which framework, perhaps more industry-specific or generalist. And I'm sure there's a lot of trade-offs that that you are making uh, when making those decisions. Can you elaborate on how to solve this? Um, What solutions do you apply 
and what techniques perhaps do you use to to standardize or to come with um, kind of decisions around how to report and what? Definitely. And look, I, I, I was there in 2008 when I was uh, when I was an ex-banker as well. And when we look at data, you know, it was data that kind of brought down the uh, securitized products market, you know, APS, MPS as well from from poor ratings calculations. Now, let's fast forward and think about where we are in 2023. What's the issue, right? I think I mentioned all those challenges that we have. So what do we use in technology? We need to be thinking about how do we use AI and ML to basically standardize. So how do we basically use how do we use machine learning to basically read different sectors or different companies within a group, including Tata uh, as well, and think about, okay, for this company and for this report, for this sector and for this subsector, this is the unit of measurement that's being used. But you can't do that manually. You know, machine learning, natural language processing, i.e. NLP, is very, very important. The issue with ESG, it costs, right? You know, and how much investment are you going to put in? So using, say, machine learning or NLP is, is a good example. Another example is, well, we want to know where companies are going to be in 10, 15, 20 years in terms of their carbon emissions. Is it going to be a is it going to be a nonlinear decrease in carbon emissions? Is it going to be a linear decrease in carbon emissions? But also there's a lot of focus on plastic as well. Now let let me give you another example. CDP. And so the CDP has recently uh, released guidance on how to measure plastic and plastic in your supply chain, plastic in the workplace, usage of plastic again. Now, how do you then basically, do you need to do uh, proxying of the data, for example? Do you need to look at a similar company that says that, okay, this company is uh, top of its game, or this this company is not at the top of its game, and do you take basically, let's say, the mean or the standard deviation around it? And that's where, you know... um, using AI and using uh, prediction of numbers are very, very important. But the issue here is, and a a word of warning, is that numbers need to basically look sane. Numbers need to be audited as well, let me say. And also they need to be understood. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm wondering how optimistic are you about, let's say, the effectiveness of letting large language models or, let's say, variations of GPT lose on sustainability data? Or do you think that regulators will be fast enough with global standards and standardized frameworks for corporate to disclose? I'm almost seeing this. Of course, it will be a combination of both, where both AI and regulators will play a role in this sort of standardization move. But I'm curious, how optimistic are you about the effectiveness of either LMs or regulators? So let's take uh, an, an example of what, what's happening in the market at the moment. You know, we have the ISSB, we have uh, FRAG, and we have the SEC as three examples. Let's go back to the point of carbon emissions, right? 
Now, if we look at scope three carbon emissions, and obviously this is as of April 2023 when we are speaking, you know, and this could be subject to change, but the way scope three carbon emissions are being measured for the supply chain vary in that in, in that calculation in the way that the data should basically be driven and then uh, churned out. Now, is that helpful to have three different ways? Of course not. But again, you know, it goes back to the point of how do you use technology? So could you could you basically say that, okay, the ISSB number for this company looks, looks like this, this is how the SEC number basically looks, and can we take the AFRAG number and can we take an average you know, which will give us sort of like a global number, given that, you know, each area represents, you know, the US, uh, Europe and uh, international uh, international geographical locations. Interesting. So in that regard, it is a mix of both, but it's also in the end, in the eye of the beholder. So in the sense of which investors prefer which type of data set and perhaps the market slowly but surely develops in that regard also standard interpretation practices that would help guide corporates on how they should disclose. Is that also how you see it? Exactly. And I think, look, we're, we're, we're on a journey, right? You know, Look, we, we, we started this podcast from looking at emerging markets versus developed economies as well, right? Uh, as we know, there are huge strides to be made. Sustainability is not something new in emerging economies. You know, sustainability is something that needs to be adapted for in developed economies. And it's only metrics from these providers, such as, you know, the ISSB or or FRAG, or GRI, uh, SEC, etc., etc., which are going to help us understand truly what is the right metric that we should be using. Does it is it sane and does it make sense, right? And when we basically regress that number in the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, will that still be plausible as well? Now, the point here is that regulators need to be thinking about, does that map to my sovereign level priority? And we know that with the, you know, ongoing war in Ukraine, supply chains have been embellished, uh, materials have to be sourced in different ways. Again, does that mean a metric is it a helpful metric or is it an unhelpful metric? Does it basically allow us to, let's say, think about child labour if I switch my supply chain? Does the metric help me understand human rights in a country from where I am sourcing materials from, for example? And for that to happen, Isabel, you know, regulators need to be very clear. What are the issues that sovereign countries consider as priority. Now, that can sometimes go against, you know, say, international uh, coalitions, for example, you know, maybe the Glasgow Financial Alliance and Net Zero. It could go, it could slightly differ from what the ISSB is basically saying. It could be, it could uh, very much differ from, let's say, what countries in emerging economies think as what are their priorities. And again, 
you know, we've got to think about the political life cycle for sovereigns, right? We also got to think about geopolitics. And guess what? Political life cycles, geopolitics, we can think about that in governance and in governance scores, political risk scoring, for example, geopolitical risk scoring. So this is not something new. So to bring we need to bring that all together to understand why are we using ESG metrics? Why are there differences? What are the sovereign priorities, right? You know, and a great one is, you know, let me end on this one. If we look at the EU, UK and US, what's the net zero target? Well, it's 2050. In China, it's 2060. In India, it's 2070. So again, takes me back to the point of technology, right? Do I go and take that metric and look at how I baseline that out to the target of these net zero targets, 20, 50, 60 and 70? Or do I need to ex- do I need to basically accelerate that metric? Or maybe as a company, I want to, I want to overperform. There might be companies that say that um, because energy security is a priority from the, the sovereign that I'm operating in or the sovereign that has asked me to do investment in that, you know, that ESG metric is not as important. But this is where metrics need it, uh, explaining, right? And that's the the power of data and data is golden. Analytics, uh, uh, predictive analytics is very, very important. That's a good way to indeed conclude the conversation. As I understand you, it's not just reporting for the sake of reporting, checking boxes. It's really the question of why. And then also linking, obviously, like the full spectrum of companies, private as well as publicly traded, towards where governments, countries need to go to in the future. Yeah, it's not a very big data challenge. And, and let's not forget, Isabel, you know, when we talk about emerging economies versus developed economies, the uh, concept of a just transition as well. And that's where, when we're thinking about ESG and ESG reporting, disclosures, you know, and metrics, does it make sense from a just transition perspective as well, because of history? Yeah, that's a key question. And we will probably hear more on that uh, with the next COP in, in the fall. And that is already happening, you know, with the, you know, with there are numerous governments who are being told to reject certain ESG frameworks and metrics because it makes their uh, economy uncompetitive as well. And there are also discussions happening at the World Trade Organization, the WTO level on, let's say, the EU's uh, announcement on a carbon border adjustment mechanism, i.e. a carbon tax so again, we need to be very clear that how do we bring in all of these moving parts of number one, ESG frameworks, report, uh, reports and disclosures. Secondly, how climate change and is going to evolve. Thirdly, we need to be thinking about, okay, where does carbon emissions go and also other GHG gases? Let's not forget, we have a regulated carbon trading market and we also have a voluntary carbon market that is being reformed. Fourthly, we need to think about net zero and all those different salient approaches approaches for different companies. And last but not least, well, what's going to power the change that needs to happen? Well, it's not just the psychology of consumer and sovereign policy, but it's also credit from financial institutions as well. So financial 
service providers, banks, asset managers, etc., are going to play a big part on here. And understanding that data, as I said, is no doubt any different from the way a large conglomerate uh, that I sit in, such as uh, as Tata is. Right. The key message here is everything is connected. It's not an isolated effort. Certainly is, Isabel. Well, thank you so much. This concludes this episode of the ESG Quick Takes podcast. Thanks a lot to you, Nev, for, for your insights and, and thinking here. Uh, thank you for tuning in. And until the next time. <laughs>